Hey, listeners, we're going to get right to the show in just a second, uh, but I really do want to encourage folks to sign up uh, for the G-File and other updates from Steve Hayes and I on our new venture, which will be coming soon. Uh, you can go to Reagan35x.com. That's Reagan35x.com. And uh, you'll get the G-File, and at, at some point soon, you'll start getting some other exciting updates and whatnot. Thanks again. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. Or we're going to try and make it exciting, because unlike a lot of podcasts out there that pander to the lowest common denominator, we believe in 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 doing some of the sort of heavy lifting public policy conversation that no one else will be doing, like our homeless podcast, like all that stuff in episode 11 that we didn't end up running. And so we have here an old friend of mine. I can't. Even, I was trying to remember when I first met him because he's sort of the classic DC think tanky policy gnome type. We have Brian Riedel, who's now at the Manhattan Institute. You are a senior fellow, a fellow, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And like many a scholar in the Manha- at the Manhattan Institute, you actually don't drive into the Manhattan Institute for work. No, I work out of my basement office. Yeah, I have one of those. Yes, it's very nice. But formally with. Portman's office, formerly on the Hill, formerly at Heritage, and you're uh, – I, and I say – I can't hold a job. <laughs> I say this with love. You're a budget geek, right? Yes. I mean, yes. like when Paul Ryan is sort of like, uh, I don't get the math, get me the readles, right? I mean, you're one of these people who comes in and does math stuff and, and budget stuff. And since we just had – I wasn't supposed to be here today. We sort of had a family crisis that required me to stay in town, and I figured I'd get another podcast out of the way. And then the budget news came out last night. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. And I was like, get me Riedel. So you wrote a piece for National Review Online about how this spells the death of the Tea Parties. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what do you think about the uh, the budget deal? Thanks, Jonah, for, for having me. It's, it's your typical big government sellout. Uh, what the Republicans did was they've been in a panic for the last several years that they're underfunding defense spending. And... In order to get more defense spending, about $150 billion, they agreed to give the Democrats $150 billion in domestic spending and raise the debt limit for the next two years, essentially suspend it. So this is this is a defense panic uh, by the Republicans. More broadly, uh, as I wrote in the National Review uh, column, this is really the final nail in the coffin of the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they came in fire and brimstone in 2010. We're gonna we're gonna cut spending. We're gonna balance the budget. We're gonna repeal Obamacare, and here we are nine years later, essentially repealing the one legislative achievement that the Tea Party can point to on cutting spending, which is the the spending caps that we were supposed to have. Right. So let's let's sort of explain what this is about. Under Obama, he kind of put in a poison pill saying, if we don't get what we want, uh, we're going to create this artificial mechanism that puts in this these ar- arbitrary limits on the amount you can spend on both domestic and military stuff. 
And the Republicans were like, push me into that briar patch. Mm -hmm. And we actually got spending restraint for the first time ever. More or less the right way to explain it? Yes. There was a lot of negotiation on the debt limit in 2011. They wanted to do a grand deal where Republicans would get entitlements uh, reformed, the Democrat, but also given on taxes. That fell apart. So they said, the heck with it. Let's just cap discretionary spending for the next 10 years at a low level. Half the cuts will come in defense. Half the cuts will come in non-defense. That has been the arguably the biggest or the most successful restraint on runaway spending that we've seen in a very long time. It's been the only real restraint we've had on runaway spending. I mean, other than a couple little waste, fraud, abuse tweaks, when this was first enacted, the estimate was that it would save $2.1 trillion over 10 years, which blows out of the water anything else we've ever gotten accomplished. And this new budget deal that I thought it was interesting, the Club for Growth, in their statement on it, to their credit, they're condemning it, which wasn't a guarantee um, given where they are these days. But they call it the Pelosi-Mnuchin deal, (laughs) you know, instead of like the Trump-Pelosi deal. But this, one of the things that this will do is in 2021, it will get rid of the caps for all time. It'll just destroy all that. Exactly. The caps were scheduled to expire in 2021. We were hoping they would be extended. They're not. And the danger is past 2021 is that when you raise spending by $150 billion a year, that essentially becomes the floor going forward after 2021. Right. They're not going to go back down. So by increasing spending $150 billion a year, it's really going to cost closer to $1.5 trillion over the decade because they're just going to keep renewing and growing from that higher level. So in that way, this is going to cost nearly as much as the tax cuts. Okay, so I want to do a little eat your spinach stuff for, for listeners who don't focus on budget stuff mm-hmm. very much, which I try very hard to be with them on this because it, 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 it hurts my head. This was a point that a lot of us were making under Obama that part of the goal of the stimulus and all these various things was to uh, increase the baseline. And what I mean by that, and you can maybe explain this better, but one of the most infuriating things for people who actually pay attention to the budget is that cuts in the rate of increase are called cuts. So if one year we spent $100 and we were budgeted to spend 150 the next year and instead we spent 125 that's called a cut, Right. And so what you're talking about here is that with, with the increase in spending, that becomes the new baseline, and that is sort of in, has inflationary pressure on more spending going down, going forward, right? Exactly. Do I have that right? Exactly. Next year, or, or the, the first year after these caps are over, when Congress sits down and decides how much they're going to spend, they're going to start out with that inflated number with $150 billion a year higher, then add inflation to it, right. and then start from there. And anything less than that will be called a cut. Right. Right. Even if you're spending a lot more than you were before this deal, and even if you're just wanting to grow it by less than inflation, you just you start out with this higher level plus inflation and measure cuts or increases from that. So is there any other institution of any kind in the world other than government that sets about in its spending decisions in this manner? I mean, like no family I know says, well, I know I lost my job, but last year we spent – $30,000 on on fun and vacations and what year what not. So this year we got to spend $32,000, right? Um it's it it seems to be the only institution that work that has that kind of uh, no business does that, right? No business does this. No company on Wall Street can do this or they would go bankrupt. You know, it's it's even crazier that the 70% of the budget that that's called entitlements 
automatically grows about 6% per year every year. There's no vote in Congress to approve this. Nobody looks at it. Nobody debates it. It just automatically grows 6% a year. And if you want it to grow only 5% a year, you have to write legislation reducing the growth rate and then get savaged by the New York Times and Washington Post for being a heartless budget cutter. Right, right, right. For cutting something that you're going to spend more on. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so let's let's talk about entitlements for a second. Didn't we just pass the point? I'm sorry, I didn't do more homework on this, but I've been playing a lot of Star Trek Fleet Command on my, Command on my iPad. Um, didn't we just pass the point where we where Social Security is now spending? We spent we passed some new long prophesied yes. actuarial calamity where Social Security is in a mess earlier than we had hoped. Social Security this year will won a hundred billion dollar shortfall meaning that the payroll taxes are $100 billion less than the actual spending that's going out. It'll be in deficit forever. The trust fund is now shrinking every year. Uh, although it's nothing compared to Medicare. Medicare is about $350 billion short this year. Right. But yeah, starting this year, Social Security is $100 billion short and is now at – it's drawing down the trust fund – but the trust fund really is just a mechanism on paper. The reality is that what happens when Social Security is in deficit is that $100 billion in general revenues have to be transferred into Social Security, which means it raises the deficit by $100 billion. Forget all the trust fund nonsense. It's not even worth going into. The fact is, when this program's in deficit, the money has to come from somewhere else. Right. So the 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 trust fund, I saw, I remember there was a Democratic congressman on, I think it was Fox News Sunday. It was a few years ago, the last time this became an issue. And he was saying how, you know, people say that the the stuff for the Social Security Trust Fund is just a bunch of IOUs and pieces of paper in a filing cabinet somewhere. And he takes out like a dollar bill or a five dollar bill and says, well, this is just a piece of paper too. And the government guarantees it. So it that's as good as currency, the stuff that's in the trust fund. And it, I think back on that every now and then as this sort of the dawn of what is becoming modern monetary theory, yes. <laughs> right? That if if the federal government makes a piece of paper that says this, it's it's like they can just write on a napkin anything they want, and that all of a sudden that napkin solves all the budget constraints issues. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, yeah, I mean that that's essentially what what that lawmaker was probably saying, and and the reality is social security. The money has to come from somewhere. Either you can do the printing press, right. which unfortunately for the modern monetary theory people, they basically say just run the printing press and pretend inflation doesn't exist. It does. The reality is, as you say, the IOUs are actually sitting in a filing cabinet in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Really, the IOU is just a promise to raise taxes later. Right. And so if the trust fund right now has $3 trillion, the government thinks of that as an asset. For you, the taxpayer, it's a liability, right? right. <laughs> because it's a, it's a promise to raise your taxes by three trillion dollars to pay back the system. Yeah, and there's no like, you couldn't have like a diehard scenario. Remember in Die Hard, where they're Hans Gruber and those guys are trying to get the German bearer bonds that are gonna, that apparently are as good as currency. You could have a heist movie about stealing the Social Security trust fund, mm-hmm. but no one would redeem the IOUs, right? You know? Exactly. They, they, the, I, the IOUs have a have a legal importance in that it represents a promise, that, that a promise to pay back these funds. Right. They're legally important. Economically, it is a piece of paper. It is an IOU. Right. 
Um, you know, just like if you have a vacation fund and you borrow from it, you still have to pay the vacation fund back. You can't just pretend it's still there. So there were there were those among us, people who have not succumbed to the urge to burn Paul Ryan in effigy, who used to re, you know, echo what he said, that this was the most predictable crisis in American history. Was that true then? And is it still true now? And what 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 is your explanation? Because you talk to these people a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. Why do so few people? I mean, this this, this pod, podcast is called the Remnant, and mm-hmm. it's a reference to a handful of people who still hold on to believing certain things. And there is probably no more remnanty remnant than people who actually care about fiscal discipline and getting our financial house in order. Right? I mean, you are. You're a mysterious stranger walking into town basically now in terms of caring about this stuff. What happened? Why do the Republicans no longer care? I mean, I've never thought Democrats care. They only care when Republicans are in office. But it turns out that Republicans only care when Democrats are in office. Well, there's there's a couple ways to answer that. First off, there have been three times in my lifetime that Republicans came in fire and brimstone wanting to cut the deficit. 1980, 1994, and 2010. Both time or all three times, they made a lot of changes in the first two years. Reagan got the tax cuts and some defense changes. The 104th Congress got the balanced budget deal and welfare reform. And the 2010 Tea Party Congress got the Budget Control Act. But eventually they lose steam. And usually after about 10 or 12 years, they get knocked out. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening is... A lot, of, a lot of times you come in promising the easy stuff. We're going to balance the budget by cutting waste, fraud, and abuse, and nothing that's actually going to hurt you. And then eventually the lawmakers realize that if you actually want to get spending and the deficit under control, you really have to go into Social Security and Medicare and to a lesser extent defense. And that's when the revolution always stops in its tracks because mm-hmm. it turns out even the Republican voters who elected these people – didn't fully grasp the extent that you need to do Social Security and Medicare into a lesser extent defense. Mm-hmm. You can't just do waste, fraud, and abuse. And so the revolution kind of ends. What happened that's interesting in, in, in with the deficit now is when the Tea Party group – when the Tea Party came in in 2010, a lot of the anger over the deficit was over the stimulus, TARP, Obamacare, and the, the recessionary deficit. Well – the stimulus, about half of the stimulus expired. TARP got paid back. The recession ended. So when a lot of that kind of went away, what was left? The main drivers of long-term deficits, right. Social Security and Medicare. And even at that point, the voters stopped focusing on it because even Republican voters don't want to touch that. The sad reality is, though, is Social Security and Medicare is the driver of the long-term deficit. And the re- the main reason the deficit is going back up is because of – and is going to keep going up is because of Social Security and Medicare. That's a much bigger driver than the tax cuts and the discretionary spending deal that we're talking about. So what – just out of curiosity, what would you do about Medicare? You don't mention Medicaid. Is Medicaid just off uh, – Me- Medicaid, Medicaid is, a, is a smaller driver. But just, just to give you a, a couple I, – I, I, I promise there would be no math, but you can have numbers. I'm just saying a couple I'm, numbers. Okay, numbers is fine. Over the next thirty years, the CBO forecasts eighty trillion dollars in deficits. Where does that come from? They say Social Security and Medicare will run a one hundred and three trillion dollar deficit, and the rest of the budget will run a twenty three trillion dollar surplus. <laughs> Like you, I mean, if, if Social Security and Medicare were, were actually paid for, 
you could actually pay off the entire national debt with the, the $23 trillion surplus elsewhere. So when we say it's a Social Security and Medicare problem, Medicaid is a problem too, but not nearly as right. much as that $103 trillion shortfall. So how, you said, what, would, what should we do about Medicare? I think there, there's the solution on Medicare is twofold. I think first off, Paul Ryan used to talk about premium support. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what you do with premium support is you give seniors the chance to shop around for their own private health plan with a federal subsidy. According to the Congressional Budget Office, it would be you could get just as generous benefits at a cheaper cost just from choice and competition. Mm-hmm. The second way to reform Medicare is to have upper-income seniors pay for more of their Medicare. Right now, upper-income seniors don't even pay the full cost of their of their own Medicare plans. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to subsidize low-income individuals' Medicare plans. It's another thing to subsidize Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's Medicare plans. Right. If you ask upper-income seniors to actually pay the full cost of their Medicare plans, you those two factors could probably get Medicare not fully... Uh, 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 balanced, but a lot closer. Yeah. I mean, but every time you talk to somebody, you know, sincere supporter of the social safety net and their answer is that if you start doing that, it will turn social security into a, um, anti-poverty program rather than, or, you know, rather than a, a common bond that we all share, that we're all in this together. And it's a middle, you know, Mm -hmm. it'll lose all of that. And, my response only to that is, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that, that was the Ted Kennedy argument. Right. Ted, Ted Kennedy always said he was against trimming be- upper-income benefits because it turns it into a welfare program. A couple problems with that argument. Number one, Democrats are already doing that. They want to raise taxes on the rich for Social Security right. but not give them any more benefits. Right. If you're going to eliminate the cap and quintuple what they're paying into the system, you are making it more mm-hmm. of an anti-poverty program. But but what I would say to that is, look, if you gotta if you gotta make the system solvent somewhere, you can either start at the bottom or you can start at the top. You may as well start at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 to the Democrats who say, well, this turns it into an unpopular anti-poverty program. Last time I checked, Medicaid is an anti-poverty program. Republicans can't cut a dollar out of Medicaid, yeah, yeah. so it's not like turning it into an anti-poverty program suddenly lose its entire political luster and makes it easier to cut. I'm not seeing anybody cut Medicaid. Right. So um, even though I am highly confident that the listeners of The Remnant are the most informed and erudite and um, well-read listeners in all of podcastum, <laughs> it's worth pointing out where the fundamental driver of the problem is, is that when they first proposed Social Security, Crystal FDR sold it as a pay-as-you-go buy-in thing, which wasn't true. But that that fiction was concealable because for every one retiree you had, you had something like 16 workers. Correct. Right. And then – and also life expectancy was like one year after or one year before Social Security would kick in, right? Correct. So the handful of people who made it, you know, God bless, here's some money, right? And now the number of people who are – the number of workers per retiree is about two to one now, three to one? Three to one on its way to two to one in a decade. Right. And you just can't sustain a wealth transfer system from workers to retirees when you have the number of workers, I promise no math, cut dramatically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one way of looking at it is when by the time we get to a two to one ratio in 10 years, 
every married couple will be paying the Social Security and Medicare benefits of their very own retiree. Right. You think of a married couple starting out. You want to buy a house. You have kids. You have daycare. You have a student loan. And you're on the hook for your own retiree's entire pension and health care costs. I mean, the burden on that be- becomes enormous. And they won't even, like, help out with chores around the house either. No, you don't, e- <laughs> you don't even get one of those, you know, postcards from Florida, like in those old Sally Struthers commercials. Right. No, yeah. I mean, it, it should be like that episode of Seinfeld where they become your butler. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also the – I mean, I, 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 I hesitate to – this, but there is, of course, the Logan's Run option where we just take everybody over a certain age, spin them around on the ceiling, and blow them up, and therefore we don't have to pay for them anymore. But I don't think we're there yet. C- CBO would score that pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so let's move on just for a second because I, I think it's worth pointing out how incandescently irresponsible the rhetoric around Medicare for All the Green New Deal, all of these things are given this context. I, I, I believe I have it right. I might have even gotten it from you that you could literally confiscate all of the wealth of the top 1% in America and wouldn't come close to paying for either the Green New Deal or Medicare for all. That is correct. You know, so they're not just ta- – okay, they think we're going to pay for it all by taxing them more. It's like, no, no, no. You could literally go with guns and take all of their stuff – Right, empty their kids' piggy banks, and it still wouldn't pay for it. That is correct. The costs are so astronomically high that it, it's actually. And for the Green New Deal, if you go by the the version that uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez produced and then pretended she didn't produce, right? It, it, the amount is actually incalculable. I mean, you're you know, it's, it's you know, I mean, it's it's got to be something like a hundred trillion dollars over ten years. I mean, there was crazy stuff. I mean, it was upgrading every house and building in America for her new energy efficiency standards, and if necessary, replacing every high-rise in America, (laughs) Um, replacing every military jet, killing 200,000 airplanes, (laughs) Um, high-speed rail everywhere planes fly right now, replacing every car in America. I mean, at a certain point, you know, I've been scoring budgets for 18 years I just throw my hands up in the air and start laughing. Yeah. No, uh, my, my favorite part about that whole thing was when they released very – you know, very they had a good media rollout until people actually paid attention to the substance of what they were rolling out. But they did that sneak peek with NPR. They had the, the FAQ or the FAQ thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that had like the cow farts in it, right? We have to – we're we're only going to do all the stuff that you just mentioned in, in 12 years because – we don't want to take on too much, so we'll get to the cow flatulence in year 13 or 14 was another thing. And then so they get all this blowback for it. And then there was this fantastic quote that was, I think, in the Washington Post where someone said, look, you have to understand that when you're doing something this complex, like rolling out a big new legislative agenda um, and you have lots of stakeholders involved, sometimes there'll be, you know, mistakes. It's like, yeah. You couldn't get some a PDF that you approved loaded onto a website because there were too many people involved and it was too complex. But you think you can replace every building, car, and plane in the United States in 12 years? Exactly. I, I wouldn't trust these people to change a tire, <laughs> much less redesign the entire economy. And it was great when they basically 
implied at first that this document was was a complete accident. Right. Like, like it wrote itself, apparently. Like no one had ever conceived of these ideas. This PDF just magically appeared on our computer one day, and we magically emailed it to NPR. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, funny. You know, you know the the underpants gnomes did it or something. It was it was amazing. But, but you saw recently. I, I've been meaning to write about this. I think AOC's chief of staff, or one of these people involved in it, said, sort of let the mask slip and said, I know mm-hmm. you guys think this is about an environmental thing, but we really see it as a change the economy thing. And I think that gives up the ghost, right? I mean, what they're really talking about doing is, is it's, it's, and I wrote a big piece for National Review about this recently about using moral equivalent of war arguments mm-hmm. to sneak in command and control economy stuff. That's really what it's about. Yeah, they, they they would tell conservatives that we're conspiracy theorists when we would say that that your Green New Deal is just a Trojan horse for broad-based socialism. Right. Well, when they put out a report or a, an FAQ that says part of the Green New Deal is Medicare for all, you start to wonder. And then you're exactly right. AOC's chief of staff openly admitted it. He said, this is not just about energy. This is about redesigning a more fair, equitable, and socialist economy. Well, there you go. Yeah. And and. I tend to think – look, I, I've I've evolved a bit on the global warming stuff over the years and I don't, I'm not as dismissive of some of it. I do think that there's an enormous amount of opportunism and all that and grift going on. But there are sincere people who are serious people who think it's a real problem and a real crisis and I'm persuaded by some of their arguments and I look at what's happening in the Arctic and that's a serious thing. But if you actually believe the rhetoric about how we have 10 years to go, but – we're not going to go in for nuclear power. I don't believe you anymore. Like you can't, you can't say this is an existential crisis on par with a meteor coming to hitting planet Earth, and in the same breath say, "But it's not worth using nuclear weapons to blow up the meteor." You know, it's it's, it's, it's a tell. If you're a serious person about global warming stuff, you should have. And at least an open mind about nuclear energy, which is zero carbon emitting. And even at Independence Day, they tried nuclear weapons. I mean, Jeff Goldblum didn't want to do it, but eventually they, they tried it anyway. So it, it, it has been used before in the movies. Um, I would but, point to Armageddon or Meteor, which are also movies that use nuclear use nu- weapons. Use nuclear weapons. Right, well, and it also gets back to the point about Medicare for all. If, if global warming is such an existential threat that we can't wait five minutes for, but we also have to – you have to agree to Medicare for all too. Right. No, I mean, if, if this is something to do ASAP, then you would drop all the baggage and try to get it passed. And you certainly wouldn't have the Democrats vote unanimously against the Green New Deal resolution when it was when, when Mitch McConnell essentially called their bluff. Right. No, I, I thought that was great. I mean, I, 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 you know, Mitch gets a lot of grief from a lot of people, but I thought, okay, you want to, you want this thing? You think it's urgent? Okay, here's a vote for it, and they all voted against. They all it. voted no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to Republicans for just two seconds. Sure. I haven't looked to see what the Freedom Caucus has to say about the budget. It f- seems to me that the people in the Freedom Caucus who would have been foremost against this thing are no longer in the Freedom Caucus because they're no longer in Congress. Is the f- I don't want to get you in trouble with guys you got to talk to or whatever, but like, does, is the Freedom Caucus actually a force for any of the stuff that they were originally founded for anymore? The... The Freedom Caucus, I mean, they've worked to tie themselves very closely to Trump over the last couple of years. And that's why a vote like this puts them in a very difficult position because they, they want to tie themselves to Trump, but they also supposedly are trying to restrain spending. The problem we've had with, with the Freedom Caucus for the last couple of years is, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put out a lot of 
a lot of grand designs on how to overhaul the budget, but they won't go anywhere. And I think part of the problem sometimes is that the the Freedom Caucus and to a lesser extent the Republican Study Committee will put out these huge grand plans with 500 reforms that can all collectively balance the budget. And they're just kind of get dismissed by the rest of the party. When I think it would be perhaps more effective to pick a couple key policies and really lobby for those Mm -hmm. instead of putting out 500 grand plans in a laundry list just to say that you have a laundry list, but not actually moving the ball. I would like to see – I think the Freedom Caucus and to a lesser extent the Republican Study Committee could be more effective if they keyed on more aggressively a couple reforms rather than just kind of – showing off their great laundry list, but not following up on it. Yeah. Um, no, that's in keeping with, you know, my view that very few people actually want to legislate anymore. They they want talking points. They want to have a panel thing. They want to get on TV, but they don't actually want to, like, shepherd a piece, an idea through the committee process, get it passed, and actually change things anymore, And um, which is why none of us can have nice things and we should all buy gold, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Herb Stein, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and also the former chairman of AEI's de- economics department. And Ben's dad. And Bueller. Ben's dad. Um, uh, he coined something called Stein's Law, mm-hmm. which says that anything that cannot go on forever must eventually stop. Since this stuff can't go on forever, uh, how, do you th- how do you think these, these problems play out in the long run? Well, just first to to look at how bad it's going to be, the deficit's probably going to hit about a trillion dollars this year. A lot of people don't take that seriously because we had a trillion dollar deficit in 2009 and it went away itself. Well, that was caused by a recession. The recession went away. This is caused by the retiring baby boomers. The deficit's probably heading to two trillion within a decade. And if interest rates go up, probably closer to three trillion. Unsustainable. At a certain point, I think what happens is – What percentage – just just for the listener, what percentage of expenditures now is already just service on the debt? Right now, it's about 15 percent. It's projected to go up to about 20, 25 percent by the end of the decade. And the danger is that assumes interest rates stay low forever. Right. Every point interest rates go up costs almost as much as the tax cuts. What's going to happen at a certain point is the deficit's going to hit, you know, one, two trillion dollars. At a certain point, the market panics because the deficit's getting too big. And that's going to cause interest rates to go up, which is going to make the deficit bigger. And then Congress will probably panic and do some low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. They'll get rid of some waste. They'll raise taxes on the rich. But that won't be enough to close the gap. Mm -hmm. So you kind of muddle along with a panic every couple of years and then you dig a little deeper into the low-hanging fruit. But eventually, because the hole keeps getting bigger, you keep having these slower growth and panics. Eventually, you lose the low-hanging fruit. And then at some point, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 12 years from now, you face the real choice of we either are going to have to skyrocket middle-class taxes or cut the heck out of Social Security and Medicare. And it's going to be a lot more painful then because instead of doing it gradually now, you're going to have to be drastic then. The question of where does this end? If I were to predict, I would say that I don't think Congress will ever significantly reform Social Security and Medicare because the time to do it was when the baby boomers were 50. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't do it when the baby boomers are 75. Ultimately, I think in 10 or 15 years, we end up looking like Europe, 
which is to say we probably have much higher income taxes and a value-added tax, which is like a national sales tax of about 15%. I I think a a European-style value-added tax is probably where this ends up after a series of financial panics and and, and attempts to get low-hanging fruit before then. And I hate to say it, but that's actually a really rosy scenario. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the non-Mad Max scenario. But it, it's it's not going to end well. <laughs> As you said, an unsustainable trend by definition cannot cannot continue. One of the nice things about my job description is is I get to flit around like a bee from different flowers, different flowers, and tackling different things. How is it that you keep from cutting yourself <laughs> doing this stuff for twenty years? It is. A depressing and embattling job. <laughs> I, I've been, like I said, I've been in Washington since 2001. Uh, when I got here, the budget was $2 trillion. That's now nearly $5 trillion. I joke that if I was paid on commission, I would owe my employers money. <laughs> Everything's getting worse. It, it, is, it is an embattling position because I, I, you feel like – I kind of feel like global warming advocates sometimes feel, which is there's something really bad that's going to happen and I'm trying really hard to stop it. But it, it motivates you. It, it motivates me to get up and 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 testify before Congress and write the op-ed and do the speaking tours and and naively hope it's making even a slight bit of difference. Okay, no, look, I mean, if you can, if it gets, if you can get out of bed and do it every day, more power to you. I, I also, I also uh, drink uh, uh, whiskey while I'm writing. That's fine. Welcome to my world. Uh, who among the Democrats right now is the least bad on this stuff? Oh, boy. That's actually a, a challenge. The Democrats – I mean, My, Michael Bennett from Colorado, who's running for president, has been a pretty consistent deficit hawk, mm-hmm. um, whether it's on tax or spending issues. Mark Warner has been has been pretty good, from a senator from Virginia. Uh, among the blue dogs, there was always Jim Cooper from Tennessee – but very few Democrats. I mean, the Democrats are, are are terrible on this. I mean, they're they're their presidential candidates are proposing forty trillion dollars in new spending over the decade. The congressional party has been so overtaken by the left. There are very few Democrats who, if, if they're resisting this, you're you're not hearing about it from very many. Yeah. And so, who on the Republican side is still fighting the good fight? There's a few. I mean, um. In the House, uh, Dave Schweikert, who is mm-hmm. a congressman from Arizona, and um, he is now the House Republican lead on the Joint Economic Committee. It can be seen often on C-SPAN giving floor speeches <laughs> on on the need to do something about about this. Uh, he he has been very good in the House. On the Senate side, Pat Toomey has has been very good. There, 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 Todd Young from Indiana, I know, uh, is, is getting more aggressive on this. There, there have been a few, <clears throat> but it's again, it's a lot of lawmakers just don't want to stick their neck out on this because President Trump isn't with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my old boss Rob Portman from Ohio has been very good on these issues, but once President Trump said there's going to be no changes to Social Security and Medicare, a lot of the calculation among among congressional Republicans is why should I stick my neck out on a controversial issue? When President Trump isn't going to follow up anyway. So I, I do think that there is more interest on the Republican side than we hear about. But again, this is risky enough when the president is with you. Mm-hmm. It's suicidal when the president isn't. I'm not a 
close reader of Joy Reid's oeuvre, but uh, I saw Carlos Lozada had a quote from her new book out, and she was talking to some prominent Republican or someone she claims was a prominent Republican, and he said the plan for the post-Trump GOP is basically to pretend it never happened and go back to Lincoln-Reagan-style stuff. Among my concerns with that is that, first of all, as a branding matter, the Republican Party is taking a bigger hit than people realize. But also, you can't spend four or eight years having politicians and various institutions buy into a president's agenda and then have them turn on the dime because there's just too many sound bites of them saying, look, no one cares about deficits anymore. No one cares about um, entitlement reform or we're not going to screw seniors and all that. And so you actually have to wait for a, a sort of another one of these generations of younger guys who come in who become deficit hawks to m- just sort of replace the people who have been co-opted or corrupted by by this stuff. How do you think – where do you think the GOP and these issues go after Trump? Let's say he – whether he wins in 2020 or goes out in 2024. Well, you and I are, are both <laughs> old enough to remember – about every 10 or 12 years, you get a cover story from Time or Newsweek about the GOP is is done forever. Yeah. And then usually about two to four years later, they win a smashing victory. So I know the the, the, the GOP has died and been resuscitated time and time again. And so I, I don't want to be too overdramatic. But the interesting thing here is in the past times when people have talked about the GOP being killed, it was because it was killed by ascendant Democrats. Mm-hmm. This time, to the extent the GOP is changing it's it's happening from the inside it's happening from trump as, as as you say the reason i think it'll be hard for the gop to go back to where it was is i think trump fundamentally exposed a difference between washington republicans and base republicans and that is that washington republicans and it hurts me to say this are more enamored with free markets deficit reduction and free trade than Republican voters are. And I think that's that's been the case for a long time. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I get it hurts me to say this, but usually Republican voters aren't running out on election day in order to balance the budget. They're usually running out for cultural issues, foreign policy issues, kind of some 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 tribalism, the Democrats are worse issues. Free trade and, and free markets just aren't the top priorities right now for Republican voters. And they went along with it because Washington Republicans, that was part of the package. Right. But I'm worried that the next time we get up to an, uh, uh, President Trump not being around, some some Republican candidate in the primary is going to pick up that policy argument and say, look, just like Trump, I'm not, I'm not married to free trade, free markets, and limited government either. And the voters... If it's true that that is where more of the Republican voters are, yeah, they're they're going to move in that direction. I I don't I, I think there's an actual fissure that's been exposed, and I think it's it might be naive to think that no enterprising Republican presidential candidate in four years isn't going to try to rebuild that same policy coalition. Yeah, I mean, Josh Hawley is one guy who looks like he's auditioning for that space every now and then. Tom Cotton seems to be auditioning for that space. My old friend Tucker Carlson may be auditioning for that space. I'm not kidding. I, I think I think there's a 20% chance that Tucker runs for president one day. Oh, and um, Elizabeth Warren can be his running mate. Yeah, no, if he uni- likes her plans. It's a, it's a unity ticket. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, by then AOC will be old enough to be vice president, and there you oh. go. And it's it could be sort of like you know how like the 
used to do politics in places like Lebanon where each tribe gets a different slot in different power holding things. It could be white identity politics gets commerce and Department of Agriculture, but the non-white identity politics coalition gets HUD and you know HHS, and it'll be great. We'll be like Lebanon, um, and, and you know, and look how great Lebanon's doing. Exactly. But I'm, I, I'm of the mind that we can't go back. Right, just too many institutions are all in. Too many institutions have spent down a lot of their capital defending things that they used to attack, and we don't need to name too many names. But if you've been reading the G file, you know some of them. But at the same time, I've always been skeptical about the Trumpification of the party in in one regard. And I'm, I'm less skeptical than I used to be, right? But if you look in the, like the first year of the Trump presidency, when Bannon was still in, in the White House before they um, you know, put all that holy water around and they chased him out, he would – his prime enemy was Mitch McConnell, and all the other senators who, quote unquote, didn't support the Trump agenda. But as I talked about with Tim Alberta recently, if you actually look at the voting record of Jeff Flake and all those guys, they all supported the Trump agenda because Mitch McConnell's agenda was the Trump agenda. It's how you score it, right? What they didn't like was what was was being punished was anybody who criticized Trump or pointed out some failures or refused to defend indefensible things. And... But in that climate, Bannon and those guys, they floated a whole bunch of sort of Trumpy mini-me's. That, that absolutely horrible guy, Paul Nealon, remember? Oh, from, yeah. from my home state. Yeah. And, um, and in fairness to Trump, Trump, there's no evidence Trump is anywhere as bigoted and anti-Semitic as, as Nealon is. Right. But there are lots of people who try to be abrasive, abusive, do Trump acts. And they all lost. Or pretty much, I think they all lost. And it turns out that, like... A big chunk of the support for Trump is is this carve out because he's entertaining, mm-hmm. and Trump imitators they don't get as much traction as you might think because I mean Josh Hawley is a serious guy he's a smart guy I'm not sure I agree with him on very much these days, but the people who show up at those rallies to support and cheer Trump they're not doing it because of Trump's you know uh, national economic policy agenda they're doing it because they like Trump and when you get Trump out of the way and like. Mike Pence can't fill one of those stadiums. Josh Hawley can't fill one of those stadiums. And I don't know that there's enough coherence to the policy agenda of this new nationalist stuff to rally the base the way being entertaining on stage can. Yeah, I mean, Trump Trump is an entire package that can't be – I think Trumpism is an entire package that can't be plucked out piecemeal. You know, I mean, part of of Trump's swagger that conservatives like is – the the billionaire successful businessman who's going to tell you what it is because he knows how to build a business. When somebody else who doesn't have that background tries to come out with the same swagger and let me tell you how it is, it looks fake and forced and people right. think, well, who the hell are you? I mean, Trump, it, it comes from this billionaire businessman swagger that gives him a certain degree of credibility. There's biography behind his attitude that I think makes it more credible for voters. You know, if Paul Nealon comes out with that kind of swagger, he doesn't have the background, the credibility. Who the hell is Paul Nealon? Right. You know, acting like he knows everything. And so I, I, I do think there's something to that, that it, it's hard to copy. But what people do like about Trumpism, ultimately, of course, is that, and, and you've written a lot about this, Republicans have long felt bullied by Democrats. 
with a lot of justification. They felt double standard by the media. They felt bullied. They wanted somebody who fights fights back, unlike Romney and McCain. I think future Republicans will have to adopt that to a degree. Mm-hmm. I don't think the turn the other cheek of McCain and Romney is going to work. I don't think Republicans need, will need someone to be as aggressive and over the top as Trump. But I, I, I think the the fighter turn the other the, the fighter is going to beat the turn the other cheek movie yeah that the 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 sort of john the baptist of all that was newt in 2012 where at every debate he always turned whatever no matter sometimes the questions were really deserving of being attacked and sometimes newt just wanted to tear off the tear the head off of some reporter and yeah, show, for, show for, to the for, crowd performance art yeah, sometimes and that was what explained his brief striking distance of winning the nomination was that it was doing the cultural politics media bashing stuff and i think that that was one of the that that same thing is what trump keyed into a good deal in 2016 yeah and and, and in fact when i talk to people about trump that's what they say he fights back he fights right. back against the media he fights back against chuck schumer's attacks you know they'll often bring up you know what happened to kavanaugh and say we need a president Who's who's going to fight back against that kind of stuff? I don't think the Republicans can go back to. I mean, I I love Mitt Romney. I was I was his budget geek number cruncher in 2012. I'm not sure that style can win for can win the nomination for Republicans going forward. Yeah. So on this fighting thing, and we're going to wrap up after this. But um, the you know this as this budget deal shows. I mean, it, when he fights, it's kind of a selective question, and on the census fight too, it's a selective thing, and. That's fine. Normal presidents have their defeats too, and they spin them as victories. Sure. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting all worked up about it. But one of the problems I've got is that when you talk to a lot of the smarter, Trumpier people, they'll say, "Look, it's not so much him. He's got his flaws, but the people who are into him, I want to, I want to. They deserve a champion in Washington, and they deserve." Mm-hmm. You know, they've been screwed by globalization and all these kinds of things. I go back and forth about you have to take those claims at the specifics examples kind of closely to find the truth in some of them. But as a broad proposition, fine. The thing is, is that often the people who are his biggest supporters are the ones who are bearing the biggest brunt of his economic policies Mm -hmm. on trade. You know, the rural voters who supported him by overwhelming margins they're the ones taking it in the neck. Uh, they're the ones who are paying tariffs on things disproportionately because they're the ones who tend to shop at places like Walmart, which is like basically a conduit from China. Um, those tax cuts did not – I mean I was kind of in favor of most of those tax cuts. I liked the corporate side more than the personal side, but that wasn't aimed at helping those well, and, and even the Medicaid and ACA reforms championed by Obama would have ultimately impacted the low end – a lot of the, the working class voters more than the middle class as well. Right. And my only problem is that when people who say, look, it's not Trump, it's the, the people who support him that I want to help. But whenever they're asked to choose between supporting those people and supporting Trump, they always say they're supporting Trump. They always opt to support Trump. And in part because that's what those people want. I mean, they, the, the Trump's base wants everybody to love Trump. And so they're kind of going with what that base wants. But if you actually look at their economic interests – they should be criticizing some of the things the Trump administration does. Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, a lot, a lot of it, a lot of it, the appeal of Trump is cultural. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. It, it's not, it, it's not as much economic. 
Um, and and like as you mentioned, the tariffs are, are are hurting a lot of these individuals. They didn't get a huge bump from the tax cuts as much as others, but there, there is a cultural appeal. And and the Republican coalition is evolving. Interestingly, it's 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 older now. It's it's which affects. Social Security and Medicare. One of the reasons Republicans right. don't talk as much about Social Security is that their voters are on it. Their, their voters are now on it, and and but but it is interesting at the bottom that yeah, they're they're a lot of them are bearing the brunt from these policies, but they're still a lot of them are still aggressively supporting Trump. A lot of it is a lot of it's cultural. Yeah. Uh, just one last thing on the tax thing. Uh, you supported the tax bill. The tax. tax? I gave it. A, I gave it a B minus. It was um, a good bill that should have been paid for. Okay. But this is, I mean, you know, what has two thumbs and likes tax cuts? This guy. And I'm pointing my thumbs at me. Mm-hmm. But uh, at some point, if you talk about the debt and the deficit stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the you've, you, and you, theoretically, I'm very sympathetic. Starve the beast, cut off its revenues. That'll force cuts. It doesn't work, right? Like the opposite works. Uh, tax cuts usually lead to higher spending. So if that's the case, um, I'm becoming more and more sympathetic to the idea that everyone needs to be taxed more. And uh, I hate the current tax system. I've just gone through two two audits. Uh, so I have special feelings about some of this. That's why I walk funny. But um, the, the, the stuff that you get from the Democrats in particular, and you know, to a certain extent from Trump, that all of the things that we want can be paid for by a handful of rich people – yeah, I think it's it, the math is wrong, but it's also dangerous to democracy. Oh yeah, because you need people to have buy-in about what they're paying for and what and what they're getting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I would I would say first on that the you you can't sustain tax cuts if you don't restrain spending. I mean, I I, I like tax cuts, I love tax cuts, but you you can't have a full social security and Medicare system. And and you can't move to a European style system without taxing the hell out of the middle class, just like Europe does. Right. And you're right. I mean, the way Europe makes it work is they tax they tax the middle class heavily. We have the most progressive tax code in the world. People that surprises people. Yeah. But and the reason we have the most progressive tax cut in the, or t- tax code in the world is not because we tax the rich higher, but because the middle class pays damn near nothing in the United States, and that is unsustainable democratically. Uh, it starts to, def- you know, it starts to look like, you know, the old definition of democracy is three wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for lunch. You can't have the, the middle class and, and everyone else essentially trying to offload the entire cost of government on a small handful of people. The math doesn't add up and, and it leads to, to major democratic problems. There's a certain degree of everyone at least has to pay a token amount. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to we're not going to tax the poor to death, but everyone should at least be willing to pay a token amount. And dark- fairness, they, they do pay token amounts in terms of payroll taxes and whatnot, but, but we do try our hardest to hide it from them. <laughs> well, and for, well, and furthermore, in theory, in theory, your payroll taxes are supposed to pre-fund your Social Security and Medicare. Right. Well, so then what are you so then what are you contributing to defense? What are you contributing to infrastructure? What are you, conti- you know, the safety net? Isn't there on principle people should at least, you know, be part of the system giving a token amount? I, I think you can make an argument for that. Yeah. All right, Brian, thank you for coming in. I'm sorry to anybody out there who ends up killing themselves after listening to this, but that's, you know, that's that's what we do around here. And uh, really appreciate it. And you can check out Brian on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Brian underscore Riedel, R-I-E-D-L. And, uh, and he's at the Manhattan Institute. And I'm sure they have all the links and thingamabobs and that all be in our show notes. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you.
All right. So uh, Brian has left the building. I hope I can put some of that wonkery in my public policy wonk bank so that I can spend it down on doing other weird things in the future without losing a lot of listeners or engendering a lot of ill will. Uh, Jack, what would you think of all that? There's a lot of math. Do you know there was, was there was there actually really math? No, no, there wasn't a lot of math. There were just a lot of numbers. And as a as a youngin, you should be concerned about some of this stuff, no? Right? I mean, you're going to be paying for my retirement. I will specifically ask that my tax dollars be earmarked not to go to your retirement. <laughs> uh, I will I will write a letter to President AOC saying I will pay for anyone else's. It's like uh, when I was a television producer. Do you know who Catherine McKinnon was? Um, no. So I don't. she was huge, a big, big feminist writer and legal theorist. And, oh wait, yes, I do. I know who she is. And late eighties through the nineties, she was one of the most important sort of feminist legal writers. I got drenched in her stuff in college because I went to an all women's college. But when I was a television producer, we had these permission forms. That, you know, these releases that you had to sign to do, which we at some point we're going to have to do for people come on this podcast. And um, only two people ever edited our sta- very standard release form. One was Judge Bork, who just like it makes you very nervous when you hand him a legal document and he takes out his ballpoint pen and starts Uh-oh. striking out stuff. And, you know, and these releases, which are standard for a lot of TV shows, you know, say that, you know, we we reserve the right to use your image for promotional materials, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And Catherine McKinnon looks at this thing, and she was a law professor at, I think, University of Michigan. And uh, at the end of every clause that said we had the right to use her image or her voice for promotional or repeats and all that kind of stuff, she would write in block letters, except porn. Oh. Um, oh, so she was one of the anti-porn feminists. Yes, that was one of her big things. Okay, so there was this brief moment in the sun when evangelicals and feminists were collaborating on, a, on, their, on an anti-porn crusade. Yes. So to, to Ross doubt that this is like the the great missed opportunity of all time that this did that this coalition did not cohere, and he keeps looking for places where it can like pop up again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I look, get I, best of luck. I, 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 I agree, best of luck. Uh, my friend Nick Schultz and I wrote a piece for NR 10 years ago where we argued that the proliferation of porn, but not just porn, just little, you know, also just a lot of nasty stuff on the web, is a source of incredible stress for parents. And... We proposed this idea. Yeah, I remember the Internet for Kids. Yeah, the Internet. Well, it's called Dot Kids, right? Where there'd be a domain that was heavily regulated that, um, you know, corporate America would love it, you know, to have access, you know, G and G plus rated stuff. You know, Wikipedia for kids could have clean stuff. You just have to meet certain standards. And you could actually hardwire computers that could only go to Dot Kids domains. That way you could get your kid a computer when they're really young and that way they can't get to, you know, you porn and all these other things. And I, I'm very sympathetic to Ross's position on all of, all of that kind of stuff. But anyway, I don't know how we got onto, onto this. Oh, but release form. Yeah. One last thing about Ross's thing about finding these cross tribal coalitions. 
the thing that worries me about some of that is that I, and I, this is somewhat of a Kevin Williamson point, I think that there is a puritanical tendency in America that is not just the provenance of, of the sort of Christian right. Of Puritans. <laughs> yeah, of, 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 of Christians even, right? I mean, there's the puritanical tendency that comes with all of the woke stuff, with all of the um, anti-vax stuff, which, you know, is weirdly cross-tribal. Um, you can find kind of all sorts of things. Um, the Me Too stuff, which for the most part was healthy but had, you know, downside. There's a puritanical spirit that doesn't necessarily need to express itself in sort of Christian orthodoxy that is a big part of the American character. And the coalitions that seems to me that Ross is looking to form are finding where you can line up shared puritanical interests. And I guess I, there's some areas where I would be okay with that. I just – it makes me a little nervous. But anyway, you brought it up. At, I Longstanding position of mine. Anyway, but you don't give a rat's behind about the deficit stuff, right? No, I do. But no, apparently no one else does. Yeah. So why talk? About, no, I'm kidding. There's plenty of reason to talk about it, but somehow it just Rush said no one ever cared. So I guess I never cared. Yeah. It's just, you know, when we're all drinking puddle water and the living are envying the dead, people like Brian will at least be able to say, I told you so. <laughs> um, anyhow. He'll be eating all of his charts for sustenance. No, in, burning in them. Times. Burning them for heat. Depends uh, what season it is. And it depends how bad global warming gets. So yeah. That. Maybe you won't need, you know, warmth. Um, or there could be a day after tomorrow scenario and it'll produce an ice age. It'll all be Dick Cheney's fault. Have you ever seen Day After Tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not good. It's bad. Also, I learned recently that it's based on an Art Bell book. <laughs> Is it really? I, yes. I did not know that. I uh, I just think that's great. Art Bell. Art Bell's the thinking man's Alex Jones, but still, like not a, not like a scientific authority of, of any kind. That's interesting. You know, when I wrote that piece, you know, my obsession, as you know, uh, with the movie They Live. Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote it. We can link to it in the show notes, but uh, it is widely considered on the left. By I shouldn't say widely. It's considered by a handful of really hardcore, serious Marxist theorists to be one of the greatest Marxist movies ever made. And, uh, but that's not important right now. Uh, it's a big building with patience. When I, um, was researching it for the piece that I wrote, I discovered that it was based on a short story. I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, I think it's, it's like a time. Yeah. It's like 12 o'clock, 10 minutes to 12 or something weird like that. And who, by a semi-successful science fiction writer, I mean, I don't mean to begrudge him anything, but his true claim to fame was that he was the guy who invented the propeller beanie. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just think is just great. So there's that. Anyhow, so the exciting news is that Steve Hayes is going to be back in town uh, within days, like five days or something like that. And we will have him on The Remnant shortly thereafter. And we're not all, but much will be explained. And I'm looking forward to that. I wasn't supposed to be here today, but we have a sort of a bit of a medical issue at home with my daughter that is of pretty considerable concern. Um, I'm not trying to scare anybody or anything like that, but we had to cancel a trip because she's got some sort of post-op either infection or she picked up something when, when traveling abroad and um, it's a little worrisome. And uh, But we're going to be gone for, God willing, she'll be get better in time and we're going to be gone for a big chunk of August, so we may start stacking up 
uh, some remnant podcasts, some evergreen stuff shortly. And um, response to the, the Wilson episode was more muted than I thought it would be. Um, but I'm glad we got it out of the way. People seem to like David a lot. And uh, anyway, I'm just rambling now. Is there anything else that I need to bring up? You never think I should be talking at all. So, Oh, that's the other thing is uh, I still haven't listened to it yet, but your intro to part two of the Wilson thing was apparently some sort of smash hit. What did you do? Uh, so I suppose I, I should listen to it. I just did. You know how, like, basically I based it off of the way 24 episodes would begin, like with Kiefer Sutherland pre- previously on previously oh. on 24. And then just show. But it was actually, no, it wasn't 24. It was more like the way that um, episodes of the 60s Batman show would begin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How that, that narrator guy would have scenes showing... He would have voiceovers explaining what happened and then scenes sort of demonstrating like when the Joker captured Robin or what have you. And so I just did that for 30 seconds and then set up a uh, lead-in to what the the next episode would accomplish. All right. Well, uh, you know, I am entirely fine. From now on, it is a tradition of two-part podcasts that this is another one of your responsibilities. <laughs> That's fine. You, know, you you said that you wanted to make this show weird, so I'm just doing my part. I indeed do, and I have some ideas about just how weird it can get. Yeah, is that what the giant octopus is for? No, that's for personal stuff. Uh, <laughs> oh, but okay. maybe you know, maybe if you can get some audio for this one from uh, from Logan's Run, uh, maybe we should do a whole podcast on. Have you ever seen Logan's Run? You had to. Have it's, seen no, it. it's one of the few of that era that I have not seen. I'm usually pretty well schooled in that kind of movie. Yeah, no, I would think it'd be your kind of deal. Um, there's actually a, apparently a fascinating story about of all of these sci-fi movies. I mean, everything gets remade, and they still haven't been able to do a remake of Logan's Run. Uh, which really does lend itself to a remake. And there's some crazy backstory about the rights, which we could do a podcast. Yeah, so if Hollywood's going to keep remaking movies, I think Hollywood should stop remaking movies that are already good and start remaking movies that were good ideas but botched or good ideas that were limited by their time. Uh, I can't think of a good example off the top of my head. Day of the Triffids would be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's see, what would be a good example of... No, I need to think about this more. But I, I just think, yeah, the, like a Logan's Run remake is a good example. Was... Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia would be good. Um, they could do all sorts of a lot of Sam Peckinpah stuff they could redo. Um, well, but, but the problem with your idea is that one of the reasons why they do these remakes is they are tapping into a market that they don't have to explain what the mo- movie is about because the people have already seen the original version. Yeah, but they if they rem- if they remake it well, they'll have sort of the best of both worlds because they'll have a small but extant fan base to see it, and then they have a pre-existing intellectual property, which Hollywood is obsessed with, yeah. apparently, to then expand the audience of. So then, like, to the people who have never heard of it, it'll be, like, a new thing. Uh, but the people who know already know about it, they, the ones who aren't skeptical are the ones who are sold on the remake, or if it's done well, then... I think they should remake the prequels from Star Wars, because they all sucked. Um, I don't think what what prequels. I don't know what you're talking about. Fair enough. Actually, a movie I've always wanted them to make ever since I was a kid is you ever see Capricorn One? Yeah, I, ju- I actually just watched that somewhat recently. Yeah, I mean that's your kind of movie, right? Yeah, it's very topical given the anniversary of the faked moon landing. That's right. Um, I always thought a great movie would be a courtroom drama called The Trial of Capricorn One. So is this a sequel? Direct oh, it sequel? Be, to it would it? be a sequel. Yeah, I mean. 
And my, my hunch is, is that O.J. Simpson's available now, so you could get him. He's although on Twitter. He, yeah, although, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> he did, I think he dies. Um, he is captured, but we're not sure if he's actually killed, but it's heavily implied. Yeah, that's easily written around. Um, yeah. But, uh... Yeah, because it, it ends just with the spoiler clacks on. <laughs> With the um, main character running to interrupt his own funeral, and that's it. Right. So there's plenty of scope for sequelizing. I, the, one of the funny things about that movie is that, uh, what's his name, Hal... Holbrook? Holbrook. He, he's in it, and he plays the exact opposite of the role he had in All the President's Men. He's like the anti-Deep Throat, trying to keep the conspiracy covered up. Interesting point. Yeah, I not really. I did not make that connection. They could a remake of Three Days of the Condo War could be could be good, although it'd be super woke and would probably be like Jason Bourne. I have a vague re- recollection that that is being remade as a TV show, right? Like as we speak <laughs> for three days. They have the, maybe just call it Condor. I mean, like if you call no, it I think days, that's actually what they're doing. You can't call Probably. it. Put a time limit in the so. Are, are, and we're going to go. And do we have to get out of the studios or at twelve? Okay, and it's eleven. 39. Rob, Rob Long was the one who told me that the original, the thing that, are you going to, about to reveal this? No. I, that the Three Days of the Condor was based on a novel called Six Days of the Condor. And they. Oh, I remember him saying that. Yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorite facts about Hollywood that he's ever dished out. And he's dished out many over he has, the years. He has indeed. So my problem with Three Days of the Condor is one that I have nurtured ever since I first came to Washington, low those many years ago, is that. There may be some CIA operation. For those who don't know, in Three Days of the Condor, there's a CIA operation. It's in New York, though. That's based in New York, where these guys, um, they read everything, right? They read every novel. They watch every TV show. They they consume culture to see if there are hidden Soviet messages aimed at whoever and everything. It's not clear why this is the highest, best use of these very smart people's times, but whatever, right? <laughs> that's what they're doing. I'm totally open to the idea that that kind of thing in the sort of post-OSS, pre-massive computer, you know, AI world, that that there were those kinds of people who did that. They did not look like Robert Redford. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know these people. I've hung out with some of these people. I know these people who read everything, and I don't want to name their names. And they, they look like the kind of people who spend 15 hours a day reading everything they do not look like robert reverend this is like the the what was that paul begala once said that politics is hollywood for ugly people or something like that show business show business for ugly people yeah yeah i mean the 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 attempts to glamorize so much of what goes on in washington always make me laugh because when you actually meet these people where you actually look at the real process that washington works with like there was a movie in the 90s where Kurt Russell is a think tank guy, basically at Brookings. Really? Yeah, and he ends up like leading a commando squad and taking over a plane and all foiling a hostage crisis. And he's like, no, it just doesn't work like that. Or Nicole Kidman was basically like a think tanker. Um, well, maybe, maybe in the Peacekeeper. I, Arthur Brooks is in pretty good shape. I know he's not our president anymore, but yeah, still, like you can still. I resent this idea that just because you work at a think tank, you can't be physically fit. I know this violates your principles, but it doesn't violate mine. <laughs> Very subtle. Thank you. Uh, no, that's true. But 
at the same time, if you are like the kind of badass who can like take out hostages on a plane and all that kind of stuff, uh huh, you're probably not working at Brookings. Yeah, you're probably not working at Brookings. And anyway, there's all it was 1990s cinema. There is so much fascinating stuff going on there because Hollywood was so scrambling for new villains um, to replace, you know, uh, the Soviets in yeah. a lot of movies, and which is why. For a time, the portrayal of Muslim terrorists was much more negative in the ninth, was much more negative prior to 9-11 than post 9-11. That Denzel Washington movie, The Siege. The Siege. Really harsh on the and and conspiratorial about the threat from Muslim terrorists. True lies. Uh, true lies. There was a huge controversy about that. And then for whatever reason, not I mean, it took a little while, but by like 2004, you Hollywood was like we're not gonna we're not gonna make movies where you know Muslims or Islamic terrorists are, are the bad guys at least not in the same way it all became much more nuanced and all of the rest um, I'm not saying that's good or bad but it's just kind of funny when you go back and you watch a lot of these 1990s movies it was a lot easier to warn about Islamic suicide bombers before we were actually the victims of Islamic suicide bombers. Yeah. Uh, so while we were theoretically still talking about Three Days with the Condor. Uh-huh. I'll share the w- one thing about it that bothers me, which I know you also are bothered by. The fact that uh, Robert Redford's character doesn't know the area code for Washington. He has yeah. to ask a switchboard operator what it is. That is very bad. Yeah, and he lives in New York. Yeah. That's just... I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe, I'd, maybe I just feel spoiled. Maybe it's just a product of my being spoiled by living in an internet age. But I, I would think, I don't know, you were alive in New York in the 70s. Did, I you, did you know the area code for Washington, D.C.? I was a little kid. That's but, true. But also... But like, would your dad have known? Absolutely. My dad also had lived in D.C. That, okay, yeah. that's true. But no, but, but, but no, I think you're perfectly right to call BS on it, because this is also the guy who knew, you know, at a granular level, how to, like, rig telephone oh right yeah that's right? that's his like every conspiracy movie has the hidden skill established early on that then comes in handy later like for dustin hoffman and marathon man it's his marathon running which he uses to escape the right lawrence olivier's nazis and i was about to get started on the marathon man um, um is it safe i don't know if it's safe for us to start it um no it's very dangerous <laughs> no it's just the the uh, gratuitous, and I mean gratuitous in the, the traditional sense of why the hell are they going there, stuff about his dad being a victim of a Red Scare and that's why he killed himself. And what does that have to do with anything in that movie? It's always bothered me. But that scene in the beginning where the Jew and the, the Nazi are in the, screaming at each other from their different cars... Oh, um, yeah. That's the climactic end of that scene early in the movie is right outside of the synagogue I went to as a kid. Oh. Um, so did you – were you aware of that movie being filmed? Because it came out in 75, 6? No, no. I mean in 75 or 76, I was like you know like six years old. So uh, it's possible I saw it being filmed, I, but it did not – Are register. you – we should send our legions to pour through frame by frame of Marathon Man to see if – I'm young... not in the background. I've watched every frame of that, hoping that I would know somebody in the background. Oh, they, okay. they clear the streets when they do that kind of stuff, so you don't get like random passersby. Um, and I would remember if I was one of the extras in that scene, which would have been cool. Yeah. 
my brother, I think he was cut out of it. I'm not sure. But my brother was an extra in the Fat Boys music video, All You Can Eat, uh, which is findable on YouTube. Um, anyhow, uh, all very serious budgets. See, this is the kind of stuff people talk about while the budget gets to the – or the deficit gets to the point that we all die. We're all fiddling – while Rome burns. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've wandered into an episode of Glop, and I'm just trying to uh, disguise the fact that I'm not a, not a co-host and hoping no one notices. But uh, I'm enjoying myself. I um, I was talking to Eli Lake of Bloomberg uh, the other day, and he was telling me how much he loves Glop, which I thought was interesting. It's I I am in podcast. Even if I didn't work for you, I would. I I listened to the Glop well before I started working for you. I think Glop is hilarious. The, you 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 three have good alchemy going. Uh, alchemy, not chemistry. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I stole that joke from uh, Comedy Bang Bang. Yeah, Comedy Bang Bang, the IFC bizarre, surreal comedy show. Okay. That is now off the air, sadly. Okay, that's, that's all gibberish to me. But, um, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving credit because otherwise people would shout at me on Twitter about it. Um, all right, so again, um, I've been asked by my partners in this venture that I'm doing with Steve Hayes and Toby Stock and others to be named later, that I should be like promoting signing up for the G-File at the front of this thing, and I haven't been doing that. Well, you know what you can do? Why don't you just start talking in a way that I can put it at the front? Okay, and actually, but leave this conversation in so that... Yeah, people, so people just get really when confused. They get to, when they get to the end, they can be like, oh my gosh, that's... Uh, we're, we're showing, we're full disclosure. Yeah, uh, they're, they're folding space and time. Yeah, um, it's, the, it's all the melange. See, now you put that there yeah and it's very exciting okay and uh please keep the chatter going on twitter please keep uh the reviews going wherever you get your podcasts it's it you know and also if you could spread the word if you could spread the word about the g file too to get people to friends and family to sign up enemies and eh, some enemies and uh and anyway i want to thank everybody for their support and i will uh see you next time this is a podcast But other than that, um... put that on silent <laughs> right now. Every the five past podcast that's gone off in the middle. I'm so happy that happened because I would have forgotten. It's silent right now, Mister. I'm going to make sure I'm like quadruple checking. <laughs> yeah, my yeah. he he won't express rage at you the way he I will at me. I hear that in like every of, uh, one of the past episodes, and it's it just it's a telltale heart. It's now yeah. um, Not this time. Okay. Not this time.